Hello, everyone. Welcome to How We Work. This is a podcast about the very real and very human dynamics that shape the way we work. My name is Dr. Misha Ann Martin, and I'm your host. I'm the Senior Director of People Analytics and Research here at WorkHuman. So this week, I'm actually live in Atlanta for WorkHuman Live. Sorry if you're not here. It's a blast, and I cannot wait to speak to our fabulous guest today. So our guest today is the creator of the Anti-Racism Fight Club. It's a no-nonsense, high-energy, interactive workshop designed to end racism in workplaces and communities throughout the globe. I've been through it. It's really impressive. So he promises that in these workshops, punches won't be thrown But the truth might knock you out. And I've been there. He's not lying. So I'd like all of our listeners to please welcome Doeen Richards. Hey, hi everyone. Dwayne Richards here. So, so nice to be here, Dr. Misha Ann. Thank you for bringing me in. All right. So I have all these questions that I've planned to ask you, but it's been a tough weekend. It's been rough. And so I just want to acknowledge that for a moment. I don't know about you, but the shootings in Buffalo really shook me. So I just kind of want to throw all the planned questions to the curb for the minute and just ask you, how are you doing? How am I doing? What a loaded question. Not great. And I think that, I mean, this is Mental Health Awareness Month in May. And I think a lot of people of color in America are really struggling with their mental health, their collective mental health, especially black people. Because let's just keep it real. In America, black people are at the lowest of the totem pole when it comes to everything. We're blamed for everything. We aren't welcomed here. And now we could be minding our own businesses, going to a supermarket and know that we could get potentially mowed down by a white supremacist. It's really, really scary. And I didn't sleep for nights after hearing this. And it's really, really affecting my mental health. Same. It's been really, really traumatizing. One of the many things that I like about you is that you've been pretty open about your mental health, you know, even in your TED talk. And that's a big deal for black men, especially. And so I appreciate you leading the charge on that. So thank you for that in general. And thank you for your vulnerability here today. Yeah. I mean, and honestly, one thing I was going to mention, Dr. Misha, and when I did talk about my mental health in my TED talk, one thing for the people who have not heard my TED talk yet. I basically mentioned how I almost took my own life a few years ago, just due to a lot of things. And it's just the convergence of actually three things. One, just being a black man in America. Two, I also suffer from mental illness, which is something that a lot of people of color don't talk about, especially men of color don't talk about that, especially black men. How many black men would get on and say, hey, I suffer from mental illness? That's not a thing. So those things. And also, I'm an, I'm an empath. I feel things deeply. So when I see what's going on in America and I see people of color, black people getting mowed down by a hateful person, it just, that's awful. But also just going back a few years ago, all those things came together and I just felt like I just can't do this. Yeah. And one, one thing that I said, like I tell people is 
when I leave my house, I live in a predominantly white neighborhood. Every single time I leave my house, the first question I ask myself is, did I do enough to come home alive today? Yeah. And it's not a huge production. It's like 10 seconds. But I ask myself that question every single time I step outside my door. Because, like, am I wearing a hoodie? Do I have my driver's license? Am I going to be driving? All of those, is my insurance up to date? All of those things that could potentially be my demise if I'm out and about. The things that people who don't look like me don't have to think about. Yeah. But that's life in America, being black. And it's exhausting. And that's the reason why I almost ended it, because I just didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah. I hope our listeners really feel that. Many of us, including myself, have similar stories. I recently moved from Tennessee to Austin, and Austin decided to start this new thing where if you're a new or new again resident, you have to make an appointment to get your tags up to date. And so I went and I found this thing out and they gave me this paper license. They're like, put it in your back windshield. And so I said, okay, so if I put it in my back windshield, does that stop me from getting stopped? No, it doesn't stop you from getting stopped. What happens is they will stop you, but they will let you go. I will tell you that I declined to take a cross-country trip with that scenario. I did not want to get stopped. That's right. I did not want to get stopped. So we've had Dr. Dan Tamasulo on this podcast before, and he talks a lot about the role of agency in terms of feeling hope in a time that feels hopeless. And I've got to think that for you, the anti-racism fight club is your agency. So can you talk about the effect that this work has had on your mental health and what are the things you do to keep yourself fresh in this game and to make sure that you're continuing to take care of yourself and thrive as you're out here just trying to survive? Wow, that is a fantastic question. And the reason why I took a heavy sigh is because I'm struggling when it comes to self-care. And a lot of it is I look around and I see all of the racism happening. I'm like, hey, the racists aren't taking a day off. So I can't take a day off. But the thing is, I'm a team of one. So I don't have like assistance and anything. It's like, it's like Jay-Z said, like, you know, <laughs> like I said, like, I'm not a businessman. I'm a business man. man. <laughs> so it's, it's a lot. So, and I also think about my children and you know, like when I'm tired, I'm like, I got to do this work for my kids. I got to do this work for my kids. But then on the other hand, it's like, if I'm burning myself out, then I won't be there for my kids. So it's the balance of that. But I don't sleep much. I don't do a ton of self-care, but I just do this because I need, I'm just so focused on trying to change the world. And I feel like the analogy I use, it's like emptying the ocean with a spoon. Mm -hmm. It's just like, I'm there with my spoon and not a whole hell of a lot's getting done. But really what I need are more people with spoons to come help me. And that's really what I'm trying to do with the Anti-Racism Fight Club. Oh, I love this. Let's get some more people with spoons. So let's talk about this work. So for those of you listening who do not know you or your work, Mm -hmm. they probably have this notion of diversity training and what that looks like. Mm -hmm. It's probably different (laughs) from what the anti-racism fight club is, because you take this notion of traditional diversity training and 
You punch it in the mouth, metaphorically, so yes. to speak. We don't endorse violence, but you no, know we're no, speaking no. in metaphors over here. Mm. On your site, you describe it as no nonsense, and you say no punches are thrown, which is true, but you also don't pull punches either. Right. So where did you draw this inspiration for this particular style that you call the anti-racism fight club and this relentlessly honest approach that informs it? Yeah, so it really just comes down to the fact, like, when you're exercising, sometimes you go to the gym and you see people just, like, barely exercising, and they think they're doing something, and it's like... You're That's not... me. Don't talk about me like that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you got to push yourself, and you got to be uncomfortable when you're building any type of muscle, whether it's an emotional muscle, a physical muscle, a mental muscle. You have to push yourself, and you have to get uncomfortable. And when I looked around at a lot of DEI trainings, a lot of them were just that. Like, oh, let's just talk about it in like nice platitudes and just not make anyone uncomfortable. And I will tell you a very quick story of a company, which I will not name, cannot name this company. I'm not going to slay But it's company. not us. It's not you. Thank no, no, no. Work Human is, I, I mentioned this, Work Human is by far my favorite client of all time. We love, love to hear Work Human. <laughs> But this is a company that you've all heard of, Fortune 500 company. So you can do it. We have a one in 500 chance in guessing what this company is. Huge company. Everyone's heard of it. So I did a pilot session with them. And then the lady was like, oh, Duane, it's just, it, you just made me really, made everyone really uncomfortable. So I don't think we can move forward with you. And then they just hired, they didn't hire her. They just tasked a white woman from HR to be like, let's do anti-racism training. And, you know, one of my friends on the inside was like, it was just awful. It was just awful. God awful. So that's one of the things. But then there's the other clients who bring me in, big companies that you've heard of, you know, the New York Times and, and Salesforce and Cisco and others that I've worked with throughout the years, Freddie Mac. And they are just like, wow, this is what we need. This is, this is really refreshing. This is powerful. And I'm not here to make you feel comfortable. I'm here to make you grow. You can't do both. Yeah. And racism is not something that you can just talk about in nice forms. Like, we really need to hit you over the head. We need to see stuff. You need to see what it looks like. And then you'll get moved to be like, oh, my gosh, we have a real problem here. So one thing I'll just mention, Dr. Michan, is one of the questions I asked in my training, the very first question says, if I injected you a truth serum, what would be your honest thoughts about racism in America today? I always start off with this question because I want to know where they're at. You know, the first answer is like, it's really bad. We need to prioritize anti-racism action now. The second answer is like, eh, it's bad, but there's other things just as bad. Third one is, you know, I don't know. And then the fourth one is I wish we could just stop talking about it. And by answering that question, I find out like, ooh, okay. I know where you all are at. And then my job is to help to change and shape hearts and minds over this, which is not easy, but it's the work I do. Yeah, for sure. It's not easy at all. So you said in your TED talk that being quietly non-racist is not helpful. And I like that phrase. So I want to talk about that mm -hmm. a little bit. Being racist is often confrontational and uncomfortable, you said. Anti-racist. Anti-racist. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so glad you correct. I don't want anybody getting the wrong idea. Okay. So you're asking people to get comfortable with that. Can you talk a little bit more about that and about how people can practice that? Yeah, I think so often 
people want to view it as, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to upset. What will my coworkers think? What will my family think? What will my friends think? And all that stuff. But what about what it's like for your colleagues or people of color, people who you are around every day, who have to deal with this, whether we like it or not? And my thing is like, hey, white people, you don't have to show up. I tell you, you don't have to show up. That's the thing about this. This is a privilege you have. You do not have to show up to this fight. You could go through my training, but wow, Dwayne, that was really good. Really good. Anyway, anyone do the Wordle today? What's going on in Wordle? And do that, you know? And it's like, that doesn't move the needle. So I'm saying like, hey, you can't be quietly not racist. You know what that helps? That helps the racist. Because let's just go back throughout history, whether it's slavery, Jim Crow laws, internment of the Japanese Americans. The one thing that all those things have in common when they ended, it wasn't because the people of color were like yelling, please stop it, please stop it, please stop it. It happened because enough good white people said, we need this to stop. And that's the thing that happens right now. In order for these things to stop, we need good white people to get off their rear ends and be like, okay, we need to fight to make this happen. Because quite honestly, you and I could be as great as we are in our jobs, we are relatively powerless when it comes to truly making change directly. That's why we need to influence as many good white people as possible to make those changes. And that's what I'm trying to do. And that's why I'm trying to tell them, like, you cannot sit on the sidelines. There's too much at stake here. And they will come for you. if they, <laughs> They'll come for you eventually if you just sit there and do nothing. So you need to step up and be proactive. I have white friends who have been silent about the shootings of this past weekend, and it hurts, to be honest. And I can only hope that they listen to this podcast. Well, I will tell you one thing. I don't know who these white friends are, but I'll tell you one thing quickly is if they have children and they honestly don't think like, oh, I've seen so many white people. Like, oh, that would never. My son would never do that. Oh, really? And you need to wake up because I'm telling you, little Connor could be on, he could be playing Roblox, he could be on TikTok, he'd be on. These people are out there recruiting and they will find them and they will indoctrinate them. And before you know it, they could be on a point of no return. So, very, it's very important to get on top of your kids, make sure you monitor their online content, their online usage to ensure that these things don't happen. But a lot of white people are kind of just like, ah, eh, it would never happen to me. Oh, it could happen to you. It's a really good point. How do you suggest people broach this conversation with their kids? The Buffalo conversation? Any conversation about racism, inclusive of what happened in Buffalo. Yeah, I think it really comes down to just making sure that these kids look around and see like, hey, we live in a diverse world. And really, not to sound like a hippie, because I'm a Massachusetts hippie. That's where I'm from. <laughs> Western Massachusetts, not Boston, not the big city now. <laughs> Western Massachusetts. And to sound like risk, running the risk of sounding like a hippie, I feel like everything that we do falls into one of two categories, love and fear. Whether it's brushing your teeth in the morning or coming to this wonderful conference, everything that you do is based on one of those two emotions. And I feel like fear is the prevalent emotion when we talk about white supremacists is that they're afraid of being replaced. Mm. They're afraid of all of these things, right? So 
my thing is we need to make sure our kids understand that people who look like us should not be feared. We should not be treated worse. It just understand that we're just, just like you. We have the same hopes, dreams, and fears. Mm-hmm. And when we teach our kids that people like us are normal and we're safe and we're not dangerous, then these kids will learn to be like, okay, this is cool. Like, I don't, I don't want to be racist. I don't want to be against these people. One other thing too, Michan, I would mention is <laughs> now this is a hot take that some Ooh, of you hot take. Uh, we like it. Okay. This is a hot take that some of y'all may not like out there, but I will share it. Not some, not many, not most, but every single major human rights atrocity on this land was committed by white people. Every single major human rights atrocity. Let's go through them. You know, genocide of the Native Americans, slavery, Jim Crow laws, internment of the Japanese Americans. All Colonialism. Tulsa, yeah, all that. Tulsa. We can even make it a little bit more contemporary. Well, let's do that. What about January 6th? Let's talk about voter suppression in black and brown communities. The one thing that all those things have in common are white people. Now, that's the bad news. Now, here's the good news. If white families teach little Ainsley or little Chloe or little Connor that, hey, these things are happening, these kids are not going to be ashamed of being white. That's not a thing. Like, oh, my gosh, we're ashamed of being. No, no, no. What they're going to say is like, hey, this is awful. I am going to do everything in my power to ensure that I never grow up to be like those people. Never. But the thing is, there's lots of white people who don't want that to happen. They love the status quo. They love the white supremacy stuff. So they'll say stuff that's palatable, like, eh, you know, I don't want my kids to be ashamed of being white. But really what they're saying is, I love white supremacy. I love the way things are right now, and I'm going to fight for it because they're afraid. They are afraid that if you give more of the pie to people who look like you and me, there'll be less for them. And that's not a thing. Mm -hmm. Actually, the opposite would happen. If you empower people of color to give us more, then there'll be more for you because the economy will be stronger. Your communities will be stronger. People will be happier and everything would grow. Mm -hmm. So there's Mm -hmm. that. So this feels an appropriate point in this conversation to introduce a word that I personally like. Mm. And the word has fortunately been coming up a lot. I'll say what the word is now. That word is gaslighting. (laughs) And I say fortunately because I think there is power to naming something damaging that's happening. It makes you feel more like, okay, this is a thing. So gaslighting. I don't know about you, but still, when something on the subtler side happens, my first thought is always, is it me? And I wonder how much of that is internal or how much of that is internalized. Like my well-meaning neighbor is going, oh, no, 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 no. This wasn't what happened. Maybe it was this other thing or that other thing. No, no, no. You weren't profiled. Not in this really nice neighborhood with Black Lives Matter signs everywhere. Mm -hmm. So do you ever suffer from that whole is it me complex? And how do we get out of that mindset as people of color? I always analyze the source. That's the first thing I do. What's the source? And using your Black Lives Matter sign thing, it's like, okay, so if you have Black Lives Matter signs in your yard, but you're voting against affordable housing in your neighborhoods, and you're voting against anti-racism training in your schools or your workplace, are you really as anti-racist as you think you are? One thing that I notice about allyship is, is it performative? And 
if you and a lot of, not a lot, but many white people, I guess a lot and many are pretty much the same thing, <laughs> I've come across, they'd say, they say things around allyship or like, hey, I really want to be a good white person. I just, they, they're, that's their main motivation. It's not about helping people like you or me. It's about putting on the performance of like, I want people to view me as a good person, Facts. a good white person. So, and the thing is, it's like that, like people like you and me can see through them. It's like, hey, if you are all about, oh, I got a Black Lives Matter sign. Oh, George Floyd. Oh my gosh, a two year anniversary is coming up and posting on social media about it. It's all about like, look at me, look at me. I'm, I'm not like those other white people. I'm a good white person. But really, what are they doing behind the scenes? It's like, yeah. I'm a basketball guy. I played basketball in college. And it's like, people are showing up for the games and having all the people cheer for them. But the real ballers are the ones that are working at four o'clock in the morning when nobody's looking. They're practicing, they're lifting weights, they're doing all that stuff. That's what a real ally is like. The ones who are doing it not for the shine, but doing it to help their team in that analogy or their communities or workplaces. Wow. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a lot of, of facts. So I, I appreciate that answer. So I want to go back to something you started talking about at the beginning of this conversation. So you were talking about the things you have to do to make sure you return home, right? Like mm. you've talked about the checklist that you adhere to, the microaggressions that pile up. And we've talked a little bit about other people dismissing things that happen to you. But can you talk a little bit more about this idea of assimilating? That's something I personally mm. struggle with a lot. So I want to talk about how we collectively challenge this pressure to assimilate and fit in, specifically in the workplace. This is a really... Good question, Dr. Michan. One thing that I struggled with, I actually talked about this on my LinkedIn profile. I know this is not a visual medium, but um, this is, I'll just tell you, I have a goatee right now and I've had it for about two months now, but for what, 99.9% .9 of my life, I didn't have one because mm -hmm. I was afraid of what my clients would think of me coming in. Now, some people would be like, oh, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Is, is it though? Because that's gaslighting. It is gaslighting. <laughs> They're like, oh, come on. It's your face and all that stuff. It's like, look, you know, as a black woman having natural hair, what yes. that's like. And, you know, as far as assimilation is concerned, but I felt really uncomfortable with it. But one day I said, screw it. I'm going to let this thing grow out. I'm going to a conference. I'm going to keynote the speech and I'm going to rock it. And I went there. I did my speech. I got a standing ovation. Things were beautiful. And then I sat down and backstage, I was like, wow, I'm so proud of myself for doing this. But people don't realize how difficult yeah. that was for me to do. And, and a lot of people, maybe white people are like, it's a big deal, man. Like someday I want to have a beard. Someday I want to have a beard. That's a wonderful privilege to have. I yeah. don't have that. It took every single piece of strength I had to get on that stage with a goatee and do that. And a lot of times... The things, and I mentioned this in my TED Talk, the amount of things that I have to do under the guise of making white people feel comfortable mm -hmm. is just soul-destroying. Like I mentioned in my TED Talk, sometimes when I see a white woman in a parking garage and it's just me and her, I'm whistling Frozen songs just so she knows, like, I'm not a threat. Like, yeah. I'm not, I have children at home. Like, I'm not going to assault you. 
and it just gets so exhausting and soul destroying. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I saw that LinkedIn post by the way. So thank yeah. you for shedding light on that because you're right. Like a lot of us do think about that. I the last time that I was in the job market was during COVID and I was terrified taking interviews with my natural hair. I like big, bold prints. <laughs> I think about that a lot. Like, how are people going to see me when I show up in bright orange? So, yeah, it is something that, that we... So how did you manage... I know that you're interviewing me, but I'm just so curious. <laughs> <laughs> a, so how did you handle that? You know, it's an interesting thing. Like, out of challenge and out of necessity comes strength. And so, to be really honest with you, if it wasn't for COVID and feeling like oh, my hairdresser is a nurse. It's a terrible idea to have her all up in my face right now Mm -hmm. while she's working on the COVID ward. Mm -hmm. Without that challenge, my natural hair would have never have happened. But because it had to, I just like (laughs) put on the armor, like you said, and it took all my strength. I was like, I need a job and I have natural hair. So this is just what's going to happen. But I'm glad, you know, the evolution definitely made me stronger. And I'm, I'm happy to be in a place where I no longer even think about the fact that well, my hair is natural. You are in the right place. Work Human is a phenomenal company doing phenomenal things. And this is truly, truly the gold standard when it comes to workplaces in America. Thank you. We'd love to hear it. Okay, so I have one last question for you. Go for it. And it's coming in hot. Are you ready? (laughs) I'm ready. All all I do is come in hot. So let's go. Let's go. All right. All right. All right. Okay. So this is something that I've always wondered about. Okay. So you have been so influential in this anti-racism space. And thank you for that. You've even taught kids how to be Mm anti-racist, which is a little bit of a new frontier and is a very difficult thing to do. Do you have a position on people of color in anti-racism workshops? Should we be there? And then if we are there, what do you see as our role in these workshops? First off, that's a very good question. The one thing that I would say when it comes to black people or people of color in these workshops, it should not be mandatory for them. It should not. That's my first thing. The second thing is, is that their role is just, it's kind of like an affirmation Mm -hmm. for them. It's very similar to how I went, this is kind of a little bit of a roundabout way to answer the question, but back in the day, I did a thing around teaching dads how to be better dads. And sometimes moms would sit in. Now, do the moms have to be there? No. But they love to be there just to make sure, like, hey, this is something we're talking about. Like, Mm -hmm. it's more affirming to them. Similar to people of color. It's just like, hey, like, we don't have to be here, but we want to affirm. Like, a lot of head nods. Like, Mm -hmm. yep. They want to sit and be like, I'm glad someone's actually saying this stuff. Mm -hmm. Glad. In that way, they feel more empowered. Like, okay, this is good. We have someone out here who's Mm -hmm. advocating for us. But really, I don't know if they have to be there, forcing them to be. And if they're like, look, man, this is too traumatic for me. I don't want to go over this over and over. Yeah. Give them the grace to sit out. But truly, this is a white person thing right now. I think it was an educator, Dwayne Reed, who said it. Let me just get this right. It said, white supremacy won't die until white people view it as a white issue they need to solve rather than a black issue they need to empathize with. Mm-hmm. And because of that, we need white people to truly open their eyes. And it's like, hey, they knock the milk on the floor. Mm-hmm. It's all there. 
we don't need black people to help clean it up. Mm-hmm. We need white people to be like, we need to clean this up. This is our mess. Yep. And so with that in mind, people of color don't have to come to these things unless they want to watch them clean up. Like, oh, hey, you missed a spot. <laughs> <laughs> So I know I said that was my last question and I kind of lied, but I've so enjoyed talking to you. I want to give you the chance to just say anything else that you want our listeners to know or anything else you just want to air out and discuss that you think is important before we wrap this podcast here today. Yeah, I just feel like no matter where you are, you truly have to embrace and go after anti-racism. This is something that we're in 2022 right now. And things are starting to get worse. If you are an organization, if you're a company, small or big, who is struggling with this, you truly need to get an expert in there to help solve this problem. Because the great resignation is happening. It's a big deal. And your people of color, your employees of color are looking directly at you to see what you're doing. And if you're not getting the job done, they're going to leave and find another place. So get someone in there that will help you solve that problem. And hey, it could be me. (laughs) Fantastic. Final words. All right, Dewey, I want to thank you again for joining me on How We Work. And thank you to everyone for listening. If you want to learn more from Dewey and learn more about the Anti-Racism Fight Club, visit his website, Dewey, D-O-Y-I-N, Richards, R-I-C-H-A-R-D-S dot com. If you like what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to this show. For more stories, insights, and videos about how we work, follow us on all social channels at WorkHuman and subscribe to our newsletter in the show notes. This episode of How We Work was hosted by me, Dr. Misha Ann Martin, and produced by Mike Lovett and edited and mixed by Rob Valoy. We will see you with a new episode in a few weeks. Thank you.